Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading Revelation 2, 1 through 7. That's on page 595 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please feel free to take one of those. They're our gift to you. That's on page 595, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be gathered in your name, to worship your majesty, your glory, and to God to hear your word and to be subjected to your word and to be examined by your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for this moment. You are a good God, and we acknowledge that this morning as we're gathered together. Lord, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do in our hearts to hear and to take heed and to apply your word, Lord, and to be changed by it, to be transformed by it. Lord, let us not be those who, um, God, the word just bounces off of like a rubber ball, Lord, but let it uh, be absorbed into us and, and, and transformative to us, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray for special assistance this morning as I peer into your word and try to communicate it to your people, I pray that you would just give me a supernaturally ability to do so in a way that brings honor and glory and that pleases you, Lord. I thank you for the moment. I thank you for this this moment that, that could be so very transformative for somebody here. And I, I ask you to just do a miraculous work in us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so we just finished a series tw- uh, of 11 weeks, rather, on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And today we're going to launch a brand new uh, series that will take us through the summer, or the majority of the summer at least. We're going to be taking a look at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Um, these seven churches in, in Asia were the original audience for John's visions that he received uh, on the Isle of Patmos that became the book of Revelation. Um, But even though these are very targeted to these seven churches, named churches in, in ancient Asia, they are relevant for the church in every single age following. Now, growing up, I thought Revelation was only concerned with one thing, with future events. Now, if you're like me, there's some of you, if you're honest, 
that when, when Danae said turn to Revelation, some of you seized up just a little bit. You cringed just a little bit. Where is this going? Are we going to be naming the Antichrist or, or, or uh, predicting bowls of wrath that are coming? And the answer to all of that is no. I thought it was only concerned with such future events. I, I, but I want you to know, and hopefully you'll be able to breathe and relax. I don't see it that way anymore. Now, don't misunderstand me. The, the book does look into future events. It absolutely does. It, it, a promised future, a glorious future. But most of its contents concern in ways that you may have never considered those of us, or those who originally read it. And also, it has a lot to say for believers here and now living in the 21st century and not just in a predictive element. Do you believe that? Because it's true. It's true. The book of Revelation is for you. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads and heeds this prophecy. And so that is us. And so the book bothered me when I was a young Christian because it seemed to be basically a, a cruel joke that God had played on us by inserting it into the 66 books of the canon of Scripture because it was like a, a Christian enigma. It was a, a puzzle. It was filled with mysterious and sometimes frightening imagery. And it was incredibly difficult to understand. Now, I know most of you have a perfect handle on Revelation, but I'm talking about myself here this morning. Many Christians to this day avoid revelation because quite frankly, it can be intimidating, can it? It can be real intimidating. Someone, however, has said, and I love this, and I want you to get this this morning, that revelation is a picture book. It's a dramatic presentation to enable Christians to have a God-centered view of history. And that view is to energize their worship of God. It is not, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book to serve as a source of mysterious calculations. The goal of the book of Revelation is the church's energized worship. That's why we have the book of Revelation. So what do we learn from the pages of Revelation that energizes our worship, that anchors our hope in Jesus, that increases our faith and our dependence upon him? This is what we learn. We learn that God is sovereign. If you ever want to know who's in charge, the answer is God. God rules. God reigns. Nobody will ever evict God from the throne. He's in charge. He's the one who rules and the one who even orchestrates human history until it reaches the culmination of his glorious purposes. That's what history is all about. Getting it to where God wants it to go. But second, we learn that as a key part of these purposes, that Christ has been declared the king of the heavens, the king of the earth, and, and even the king of the church. No matter what you and I will experience in this life, nothing will ever alter the fact that Jesus Christ reigns. In fact... This reigning that Jesus is now uh, enjoying, this reign will continue on and on. This is what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I like that. And let me tell you why. 
Because other enemies may not concern me so much. But death, that concerns me. All of us are, are, are walking slowly and steadily towards our expiration date. And some of you, quite frankly, are a lot closer than others. But we're all heading there, every single one of us. But I have a promise here that the reign of Christ means that a day is coming when death will be completely defeated by him forever. And man, what a promise. What a promise. In chapter 1 of Revelation, this, this, on this theme of Jesus reigning, John, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, sees the glorified Jesus. Now here's the thing you need to know. Some of you may have little uh, wooden crosses with an emaciated, wounded Jesus hanging there. This is not the Jesus that John saw on the island of Patmos. He no longer appeared to John like a peasant carpenter. He was no longer a suffering savior on a cross. The, the, the glorified Christ that John saw appears before him in the role of a king, of a priest, and as a judge of all the cosmos. Let me share with you what John saw. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The, the, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the Jesus that John saw. But thirdly, we also learn that although, and we affirm this fact that he is reigning now, there is an already aspect to his reign. And there is, a, a, as well, there is a not yet element to his reign. Real quickly, I won't center here too long, but Peter said on, on the day of Pentecost, he said, God has made him, present tense, God has made him both Lord and Christ. So he already is Lord and Christ. We're not waiting for him to become Lord and Christ he already is. And then Paul said in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, future tense. So we know that, that, that there's, there's a, two things working here. There's a already element to the reign of Christ and there's a not yet element to the reign of Christ that we're waiting for the fullness and culmination of. Fourth, we learn that willingness to suffer for Jesus is the only road to Christian victory. And that's important because we live in a culture where there are many voices from people who call themselves pastors who are telling you that the sign of victory in, in uh, your Christian life is the elimination and the avoidance of suffering. And I'm telling you that is a hellish lie. The Bible says 
Jesus said, in this world, John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. Our hope is not in avoiding tribulation, but our hope comes from what Jesus said next. He said, in this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And this is not, this, this victory that comes at the end of tribulation isn't reserved for a remnant of people at the end of time. This, this suffering that, that brings us to victory, it's the expectation of the normal Christian life. But the great promise is that if we're faithful, our, our suffering will end in the fullness, the indescribable fullness of eternal joy and glory. And man, It's worth it. No matter what we have to endure to get to that glorious end, it is worth it. Fifth, and really importantly, we learn that all biblical prophecy, every prophecy of the Old Testament, every prophecy of the New Testament, all of it culminates in a new creation. New people New birth, new covenant, new temple, new Israel, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Everything reaches its fullness in an absolutely new creation. We also learn another thing. We learn that Satan creates and produces absolutely nothing, but he is absolutely a liar and a counterfeiter. Revelation is an interesting book because it often looks like you're peering into an alternate universe where Satan is working hard to try to imitate everything that God has decreed for his glory. But the good news is the the end of the book where it tells us that ultimately this counterfeiting, this lying, this deceiving the nations will end in eternal destruction of Satan and all who have ever joined in his seductive duplicity. It's all going to be ended. And Jesus will be victor forever. So let's talk now about the seven churches and how this came about. This is the instruction that came to John. If you have your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 10. And this is what John says. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, what I want you to see, although we're not covering the entire book of Revelation in this series, I want you to understand something critical about Revelation that will help you make sense of the whole book. Revelation is built on a foundation of sevens. The number seven is critical in Revelation. In its pages, we read of seven churches. We read of seven letters, of seven spirits, of seven golden lampstands, of seven stars, of seven seals, of seven horns, of seven eyes, of seven angels, of seven trumpets, of seven thunders, of seven thousand people, of seven heads, of seven crowns, of seven plagues, of seven golden bowls and seven hills and seven kings. In fact, the entire book of Revelation contains seven cycles of judgment repeated one after the other. So what is the meaning of these sevens? Why is it so prominent in the book of Revelation? Well, in the Bible, 
the, the number seven represents completeness or sometimes perfection. For example, there were six days of creation and when it was completed on the seventh day, God rested. Now that's important because this seven that you keep seeing over and over again in the book of Revelation, it heavily points back to the original creation and it, so that, so that it can now be pointed forward to a recreation, recreated every Everything is being recreated by God. In the symbolism of Revelation, this message, therefore, because of this seven, meaning completeness or perfection, this seven isn't limited to seven Asian churches from 2,000 years ago. All of those churches were in what is now modern-day Turkey. Rather, seven represents a message to the complete church, the whole church, its completeness. And so these, uh, you know, so whether, no matter where the church is located, in places and times, these messages, these letters apply. These introductory letters, what I'm trying to say, are as much for us as for any of the seven original churches who received them. Now, each of these letters is really important as we talk over the next, the following six weeks about this. Each one of these letters contain a pattern that points to the larger themes of Revelation that we just discussed. So, for example, they're each addressed to a specific church with varying specific needs, indicating that, that Christ has an intimate relationship with each of his churches. That's good news. Each of them identifies Christ in a specific way that alludes back to the display of his majesty in chapter 1. And every time they begin, they say, these are the words of him. This is God speaking. These words are not filtered through a prophetic voice. These are the voice of God. This is Jesus Christ talking to his church. In each letter, Christ says this important two-word phrase. He says, I know. And this refers, when he does this, he's referring to a specific condition or, or circumstance or situation that exists in that church. And this shows that Jesus is always watching and always tenderly caring for the church. And man, that makes my heart glad. Jesus, in each of these letters, evaluates each church and he offers rebuke or commendation or sometimes both. Jesus issues a promise or a threat to each church with the affirming words, I will, I will come to you, and etc., etc. Jesus gives a promise to each individual within each church. He says in each letter, he says to the one who conquers, and then he issues a promise. And, and it's regardless of the condition of the church he's addressing as a whole. What he's saying is those who will go against the culture of even the, the, the worst of these churches and they overcome and they survive and they stay faithful till the end, God will reward them. So each of these letters, what I want you to see, it's a microcosm of the message of the entire book. In what follows, Revelation, I mean, what follows the letters in the rest of Revelation, the balance of Revelation, Revelation assures the saints of the closeness, the intimacy, the care, and the reign of Christ. Christians in the book of Revelation are, are warned to avoid worldliness and compromise and idolatry. A glorious future is described for those believers who are faithful to the very end. So that kind of sets up Revelation, sets up the letters. Let's dive in. So go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And this is the, the, from the text that, uh, that uh, Danae read to us this morning. To the angel 
of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we're told at the very end of chapter 1, a little key to some of this symbolism and imagery. We're told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what I want you to see, Jesus says, I hold the seven stars, the seven angels, in my right hand. He identifies himself as the one who holds those who have authority over the churches. Seven stars or seven angels of the church. So this word, what I want you to understand is this word for angel is actually the word translated messenger. Actually, the word messenger is translated angel in this passage. Um, and it's unclear. You see people uh, in commentaries, study Bibles on both sides of the issue. It's unclear whether angel should be translated elder or pastor since they're the human messengers of the individual churches. They're the one who bring the message. Now, don't get worried if you're strongly on one side or the other. Either way, it doesn't ultimately matter whether it's angels or elders, doesn't matter. If you choose angels literally, which I'm fine with, you're going to discover that God has assigned angels to churches to watch over them on God's behalf and to report on their condition before the throne of God. And if this is the case, it's still a powerful message because Jesus is saying that he has the authority, the total authority over his divinely appointed angelic agents. And isn't that good? If you prefer a reference to pastors or elders in this text, you're going to see clearly something that's very important for you to know, that God has full sovereignty over his church and over its leaders. No pastor, no elder, no deacon serves above the examination or the accountability to the Bible. None. And no pastor, elder, or deacon serves uh, above the examination and accountability of the people he serves, and most importantly, outside the accountability and examination of Jesus himself. And that's what Jesus is saying. I hold the messengers in my hand. And so what Christ can do with that power of holding the messengers is he can exalt the lowly or he can humble the proud. And we've seen him do it dozens and dozens of times. Now, when he says he walks among the golden lampstands, remember the golden lampstands are the, uh, the golden lampstands are the seven churches. We should take great comfort from that as well. Why? Because you know what that's telling us? That Jesus is here. He's right here. His presence is here with us. He's not just up in heaven or, or you know, just, you know, somewhere in a tomb in, in uh, uh, Judea. We know that. But he's here. And, and let me just say one other thing. Jesus is in no way attached to this building. When I was growing up, my mom would tell me, hey, don't run in here. This is the house of God. Or, or, you know, uh, be quiet here. This is the house of God, whatever. You know, and, and, and I really, I embraced that. I thought about it. I, I, it kind of freaked me out just a little bit. Because I would be at home on a Tuesday evening. And I'm, I, this is true. I'm not just making this, it's a pastor story. I'm, I'm serious. And I would think, I wonder what God is doing at his house right now. 
What does God do when no one's there? Does he watch TV? Does he clip his nails? What does God do in his house? And, and that was a sincere, childlike thought. I really believed that. But what I've grown to learn is that, is that the Bible says not this building or any other building holds any kind of sacredness. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The sacredness is within the people of God. That's the lampstand he walks among. It's the people. He's here. He's always walking among us. He walks among us to convict and instruct us, to comfort and correct us. He watches everything we do in his name. And if we are believers in Christ, truly believers, everything we do is in his name. Revelation 2.2. He's talking to the church of Ephesus and he says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance. Now you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are patiently or enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jesus, who is walking among this Ephesian church, he tells them what he has observed there. And, and what he knows about them and what Christ knows about this church from this first passage is that they are very, very commendable. They're working hard for Christ. They're enduring persecution patiently without grumbling and without complaining. And let me tell you, with no reservation, these are great qualities. As believers... We're called to serve. We're called to work and called to labor and to toil for Christ and his kingdom. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Let me tell you something. A lazy Christian, both in the daily work that you do for 40 hours a week or the work you do for the Lord, a lazy Christian is a reproach to Christ. Are you someone who is working heartily for the Lord in everything you do? If Christ were to send a letter to Northridge Life Church, would you be, content, would you be commended by him for your labor? Twice in the passage, the Ephesians are commended for patiently enduring persecution. This is a hard one for us in the West, in America particularly, because many of us never draw any fire from the devil or any fire from the world for faithfully working at Christ, for Christ. And so this idea of patiently enduring persecution is a moot point. But what I want you to understand, that if that's the case for you, you have a misunderstanding, a dysfunctional understanding of the gospel. Christ demands that his people are people who bear their cross and the shame that it brings so that he might be glorified before the watching world. And my question to you, seriously to be considered, is are you bearing your cross and the shame of it? And is it resulting in persecution? Is it resulting in misunderstanding, unpopularity, whatever level? 
See, working heartily for Jesus will always result in some level of persecution. Working hard and enduring persecution are not separated, they're linked. If you're not experiencing any, or if you're modifying your life and your faith in Christ to actively avoid persecution, I would urge you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I would urge you to investigate the genuineness of your salvation and your love for God. Doctrinally, let's move on. Doctrinally, the Ephesians have a firm commitment to the truth. They absolutely reject those who are practicing wickedness in the name of Christ. They won't put up with it. They will not allow people to rest secure in their fellowship while unrepentantly and openly practicing the things that God hates. And I'm telling you again, the American church could learn a whole lot from the Ephesians. Many churches today, and I say this with a broken heart, many churches are refusing to address or openly accepting homosexuality, abortion, other immoralities. And these things, I want to say clearly and boldly, these things are wicked and the church must say so. They absolutely must say so. The Ephesians also had a zero-tolerance policy for those who would promote or embrace heresies, and Jesus commended them for that. Nothing breaks my heart more, nothing, than when I hear that some are still clinging to the lies of the false prosperity gospel or new age tainted charismatic practices that they're they're holding on to those things. And Jesus, what I want you to know this morning, draws a line in the sand and he demands that we choose sides. And here is the line in the sand. We must decide to be a nothing but the gospel church or we will be a polluted church. We must, let me say that again because I want you to hear this. We must be a nothing but the gospel church or we will be a polluted church. And if we choose to be a polluted church, we will be a church whose days are numbered. Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. Verse 4. But I have this against you, Christ says to the Ephesian church. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. After commending them for their hard work, patient endurance, resistance to evil and false teachers, Christ corrects them. How does this apply? Well, there are many churches, many that have rock-solid doctrine that condemn worldliness in all its forms, that maybe even to one degree or another have patiently endured persecution, that nevertheless display neither consuming love for Christ or sacrificial love for others. And this is what Christ means after commending all of their good works and charging them with abandoning their first Love. What he's saying is the Ephesians were a working community, but they weren't necessarily a loving community. That's a problem because love doesn't result from work, but work usually results from love. 
man, back in 1986, I met this blonde hottie. And man, I spent about seven years working out of a burgeoning love to make her notice me. (laughs) Seven years later, somehow, by some miracle, she had a stroke or something and said, I do. Love results for, love never results from work, but work results from love. Nothing that, that the Ephesians did for Christ mattered if it, if it didn't, if it wasn't born actively from love for Christ. It didn't matter. It was empty. And our love for Christ, a lot of times we'll say, come on, Mark, back off. I'm right here. I'm in church. It's Sunday morning. I'd be doing anything. Of course I love Christ. Your love for Jesus can never be assumed. Some of you are not consumed by love for Christ. You're just consumed with religious duty. Your love for Jesus can't be assumed. It needs to be practiced and demonstrated. John, 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. John's words, not mine. Jesus' words, not mine. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen... Now, humor me. Everybody, everybody in this room, look around this room. See as many faces as you can. Everybody look around. Come on, I see some of you saying, nope, but I want you to do it. Everybody look around. Look at the faces in the crowd. You know who those are? Those are your brothers and sisters whom you've seen. That's who you're looking at. And now you're held accountable because you looked at him. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If your heart is a festering cauldron of hatred and unforgiveness, do not preach to me about how much you love Jesus because you're a liar. Again, I didn't say it. Jesus did. It's impossible to truly love God and to hate other believers. See, the Ephesians' first works that Jesus is now calling them back to were most likely acts of love toward brothers and sisters, not just loud, exuberant worship. I'm sure that was part of it. But it was most likely acts of love towards brothers and sisters that have now decayed into mere religious duties a habit of religion instead of a passion for Christ. And the solution for them was to recognize this, to repent from it, to turn and to return to their original passionate love for Christ and for one another. I quote this scripture, probably if you did a, a, you know, a, a digital search on all my sermons I've ever preached, you'd probably find this scripture more than any others. But 2 Corinthians 3.15 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And I used to think that the examination that was being called for here was made mostly in the area of my morality. If I have a filthy mouth and watch a bunch of nasty movies, then that's what God's talking about. Am I really in the faith? Examine myself. But what I think more it's talking about is maybe the examination to be made is made in examination, uh, examining rather both my secret and my public love for Christ and for you. 
I think that's a really good place to examine whether I am in the faith. Not the creed that I ascribe to, but the creed I live out. Are you hearing me this morning? Verse 5. Listen to this, what Christ says. If not, if you do not repent, if you do not return to the first works, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Christ issues a stern threat of the consequences of not repenting. Ephesus will cease. It will cease to be a true church. More to be compared with apostate Israel. Now, everybody, let's get real. Many of you may not think this is such a big deal. If this church is gone, I'll just go to the one down the street. And we think that way because we've become spiritual transients. We've become spiritual consumers. We move from one spiritual soup kitchen to the next to meet our needs and fill our bellies. But this should not be. This it shouldn't be. But, but more, the larger point here is that Jesus is not talking about a particular church among many being dissolved, having its lampstand removed. He is threatening to snuff the light of the gospel witness for a time in Ephesus. And my question to you is, if you knew the same thing could happen in Lubbock, would it bother you? If Jesus said, I will remove the light of witness from Lubbock, would it bother you? Let me lay out for you how this looks. I said that Ephesus, along with the other six churches, were located in modern-day Turkey. And today, modern-day Turkey, the population thereof, is 99.8% Muslim. That's, that's the, the, the religious makeup of Turkey. The other 0.2% includes Christianity and every other religion is, is in that little capsule of 0.2% of the population. And as I've pondered that, it seems to me that this is what it looks like to have your lampstand removed. Now, I'm not cursing the nation of Turkey. I hope missionaries go there. I hope the gospel breaks forth. I, and I know that the, in the end, Jesus is going to be Lord even over Turkey. That's what we said earlier. His reign is expanding. But I'm just saying, something has changed. The light of Ephesus and the other six churches didn't expand. It shrunk. And Jesus predicted, he said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove this light. I'm going to take it away. And why is that? That may seem counterproductive for Jesus to do that in his kingdom. This is why. Jesus would rather have, please hear me, no church at all in an area than a church that falsely represents the gospel and the power of the gospel and the power of the Lord Jesus and the truth and purity and holiness of God, he would rather have no church at all than have one that was false. This warning was placed in Scripture so that we could examine ourselves and see if we're guilty of the same thing and repent thoroughly. Do we love God? And if you say yes quickly, I ask you, what is the proof? 
Does that love motivate everything else you do, including the way that you love your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Jesus said this, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, the last night of his life before his crucifixion, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now listen, Jesus had said that we should love one another before this. This wasn't an entirely brand new commandment. In fact, he had said that the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But now what makes this a new commandment is in the latter half, half of the commandment, he is going to significantly raise the stakes. He no longer says the second greatest commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says this, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So as you examine your love for Christ in the light of your love for each other, how are you loving each other? My encouragement to you as a pastor this morning is to show love for him by the way that we love each other loyally and passionately. Verse 6 returns to another theme here that we'd mentioned earlier. He says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we have no idea specifically who the Nicolaitans were, except that they were obviously a heretical Christian sect And most likely, compared to things that are written in the other letters, they were a uh, a group that was seducing true believers to immorality, probably even sexual immorality, and antinomianism. If you're not familiar with that word, it just means to use the gospel of God's grace as a license to sin. To say, well, since we're forgiven, there's no rules anymore. There's no law. We can do whatever we want. And, And Jesus mentioning this emphasizes the importance that Christ places on both the purity and the holiness of his bride. He's saying that, that it starts with this love. He says, but, but this, is, this is the hope for you. You guys will not put up with this other foolishness. And Jesus brings this letter to the Ephesus to a close by saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this call to he who has an ear to hear is found in all seven letters. And it's Jesus' way of calling his church to attention. Imagine a a, a drill instructor coming on a parade ground and saying, attention! Everybody snaps to attention. That's what Jesus, through the Spirit, is saying. He's saying, hey, pay attention, take heed, listen to what I'm saying. Give me your full attention. And how often, uh, can you just be honest with me and let me be honest with you, how often do we hear messages preached or even read scriptures directly from the Bible that literally go in one ear and out the other? And what Christ is saying is we must take heed. Now listen, I have no illusions, none whatsoever, that this was a perfect message. This is not going to be written in the annals of history as one of the greatest messages ever preached. There's Jonathan Edwards, there's Charles Spurgeon, there's Mark Sharp right there. None of that's going to happen. I am not even pretending that is a possibility. But here's what I am saying. I have done the best I can to try to preach to you the word of God. And here is my question to you. 
Are you going to head out, go to lunch, and forget everything that was said? Or what will you allow the Lord to do to transform your life in the light of what you have heard? If nothing I said was of any value, that's okay. But you heard scripture in there too. Chew on the scripture. What is the scripture telling you? What is it calling to you? How is it correcting you? How is it rebuking you? How is it encouraging you? What are you going to do? Well, this will be just another passing moment of encounter with God's word that will not make a hill of beans worth of difference in a year, in a month, in a week, or even tomorrow morning. What's going to change in us because we've heard God's word? Let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And the assumption is, it sounds really negative, but not all of you have an ear to hear. But if you do, what are you going to do? We must take heed. James says this, for anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what, forgets what he was like. So let us be doers and not hearers only. What will you do with what you've heard today? Will you forget the image, the, the face that is on you that Christ has shown you in the mirror of his word? Or will you go and groom yourself in the light of the scripture? For those who hear, for those who will endure to the end, a priceless promise is given. Christ says you'll be given access to the tree of life as, as you live eternally in the paradise of God. Now, this tree is described more fully in chapter 22 of Revelation. What we're told there is that its leaves, which are always in bloom, are given for the healing of the nations. But I want you to look not to the end of Revelation or the end of the Bible, but to the beginning. This tree was also originally found in the Garden of Eden. Humanity, according to Genesis chapter 3, could have taken of the tree of life and lived forever. But instead, as you know the story of Genesis chapter 3, we took the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in disobedience to God's command, we subsequently cursed all of our generations to sin, to futility, and to death. But now Christ returns to us in this vision of recreation, of new creation, and he promises us that to eat of the tree of life now, just like it would have been in Genesis chapter 3, is our assurance that the curse through Christ is now broken. And that through Christ, creation is now been restored. And that through Christ, we can take of the fruit of the tree of life and live eternally. That is the message of Jesus today. We can continue to walk having discarded our first love or we can repent, return to the first works, overcome all of the cynicism and negativity and persecution of the world and feast on the tree of life and live forevermore in the paradise of God. I want that. 
if I can put it in these terms, I'm hungry for that. My appetite is whetted to eat from the tree of life. And I hope you'll be there with me. I hope you will. Will you stand with me? I'm going to invite you right now to uh, come forward and receive the elements of communion if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. Um, If you're not, please just stay put. Um, But we'd love to tell you how you can become a believer. So just make sure you talk to us after the service. But if you're a believer, come and receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in a moment. I could uh, issue a stern command. And some of you might have felt like this message was a stern command. And I could say, hey, love Jesus. Hey, love each other. And you know what? Wouldn't do a bit of good. Not because that, that sounds like I'm saying that because you wouldn't do it. That's not what I'm saying. You couldn't do it. You couldn't. I couldn't. But we've proven over and over again that the law motivates us to nothing except for more rebellion. Paul said, I wouldn't even know what coveting was until the law said, hey, Paul, don't covet. And he said, I coveted and I died because the law told me not to. And so when I talked about what you're going to do with what you've heard today, my Hope is not that you'll go, okay, gotta love, gotta love. And then some jerk in the parking lot out here cuts you off and it's all over. You know, it's hopeless. I am not trying to issue a stern commandment here. But we've worked our way back once again to the Lord's table. And I would remind you that you have absolutely no greater impetus, no greater motivation to love than the fact that Jesus loved you first and that Jesus loved you best. The Bible tells us so much. It says, we love God because he first loved us. When did he love us? Well, Romans says that that, uh, he loved us while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for us to complete our Tony Robbins self-improvement plan. He, he loved us even before we made any moral improvement. He loved us. And so if you will bathe yourself in the knowledge of Christ's sacrificial love for you on the cross, there is no way you're not going to love him more. It's an absolute impossible impossibility. And, and, and the further step is that if you will bathe yourself in the love of God revealed in the cross, you'll love him and you'll begin to love what he loves and more specifically, who he loves. And in consideration of how much you've been forgiven, you'll look at others who need forgiven, love, understanding, and you'll be drawn to them. And so... So this isn't just a little ceremony we're going to wrap up with. We're coming to the table of the Lord because, oops, six days have passed since the last time we did it, seven days, and I need to remember again. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what I've done. And if I do, if I remember him, my hope is that I might just become like him. Amen? So let's, let's think about what the Lord has done this morning. Paul says, For I received what, from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and he, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you help us to remember the sufferings of Christ? Not just the gore and the pain and the agony of his sufferings. Lord, help us to remember the purpose of his sufferings. That through his bloody, battered, tortured body on the cross, he was calling sinners like me to be his. To have fellowship with him. To be a part of his body. To be redeemed and forgiven of sin. To be healed of all of my iniquities and backslidings. Lord, in the taking of this bread, will you make the realities of the suffering of Jesus and their purpose real to me this morning, that I might love him more and love his body more. Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, as we prepare to partake of this cup that represents your cleansing blood, Lord, we pray that we would, in this act, both proclaim your death until you come and be empowered to proclaim your death to everyone, everyone we know, everyone in our family, among our friends, everyone we work with, that we would proclaim your death and rejoice in it, Lord. And by our love, that they would all know that we are Christians, Lord, and that they would be invited into our fellowship, Lord, and into faith in you. So, Lord, we thank you for your blood that cleanses us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup. If you would, just raise your hands or put your hands in a receiving position. I want to pronounce a benediction over you. This is what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why through it is that through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.